Yes, let's open up to John chapter 3. We will be in the first 10 verses this morning. Uh, These verses are some of the most important verses in the whole Bible. So uh, this will be significant time together as we study these verses. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Let's read those together. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it, go, where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I'm just reminded, my soul is reminded of these words in worship. Uh, David wrote to you, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Lord, this morning we come to you, our rock, our refuge, our stronghold, our deliverer. Lord, this morning we we may be coming from all kinds of different circumstances and places, but together we just say that you, Lord, are our rock and our refuge. And we, we come like sheep, maybe some are sick and some just barely made it in here, Uh, Maybe some are doing really well, but Lord, together we just look to you, our shepherd, our chief shepherd, our good shepherd. And right now we we just sit together at your feet as you lead us by still waters and green pastures, as you feed us and nourish us and restore our souls. So, So God, would you do that this morning? We know you will do that. You are a good shepherd. You will lead us and teach us and feed us and nourish us. And Lord, maybe even this morning, you would add some more sheep to your, your sheepfold this morning. Would you save this morning? Would you call other sheep who are wandering back home, back to walk with you? Lord, if there are sheep in the, in the valley right now, the shadow of death, would you, comfort, would you comfort them and be with them? Together, we look to you and your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. If there was one key to true spiritual life, would you seek it? If there was one key 
to conquering your sin and your weakness, would you seek it? If there was one thing, one key that was able to rescue people from perishing for eternity, would you seek it? This morning, Jesus has a conversation with a very important man about such, such a key. And th- this conversation comes, if you remember, if you were here last week, if not, uh, look at the end of chapter two. This conversation comes on the heels of some sobering words about humanity. Uh, Genesis, or Genesis, John chapter two, verse 23 and 25. Look at these words. This is what we covered last week. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. You see, last week, we were introduced to this concept that not all faith is true and deep and saving, that that there are those who have the superficial faith. They, yeah, sure, they say they believe in Jesus, they believe in his name, they they look at his signs and they're impressed, but this faith isn't saving. It's it's not all the way down. It's not uh, working at this heart level that will last through all of life. Now, our text begins with such a man. It starts verse one, now there was a man. You know, the the last verse of the last chapter, Jesus knows what was in man and now we see such a man as Jesus was just speaking about. We see Nicodemus. He is an example in the flesh of this kind of superficial faith, a faith that is not saving faith, faith that may be impressed by the signs of Jesus, but is not saving faith. It's not living faith. And, and in our text, we're introduced to a man who is, uh, whose credibility and status could not be higher. And yet, as he comes to Jesus, Jesus says to this man, you must be born again. And as Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus, we learn three astounding truths about this this thing Jesus calls the new birth. And the first truth we read is this. The new birth is the one key that opens the kingdom of God. There's one key that opens the door to the kingdom, and it's the new birth. Look again, verse one, we'll read that. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, I want us to see, we need to understand who this man is before we we can feel the weight of what Jesus just told him. So first, this was a Pharisee. Now, we've probably heard of Pharisees if you've been to church for any bit of time. You know, they're the classic, like, nemesis of Jesus. Jesus is always critical of them. He's, he's always saying, man, you guys, you do all the right things on the outside, but your hearts are not right before God. And so we're familiar with the Pharisees and we're, we're used to them being the bad guys. But at, it's, it's easy to forget at this time of the Jewish people, the, the, the people of God, the Pharisees were the religious leaders and examples They were the elite, esteemed, morally upright ones in their community. 
And during Jesus' time, there was around 6,000 or so of these men who were called Pharisees. And there was no one higher than the Pharisees in the minds of the people. The Pharisees were all the way up as the, the religious examples of the day. Now, not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, we also read he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, what that means is this is a reference to the Sanhedrin, which is a group of 70 elders who functioned as like the, the political head, so to speak, of all of the Jews. If you remember back in the days of Moses, when Moses was leading all of the people out of, uh, out of Egypt, he instituted 70 elders. It's the Sanhedrin. And that practice of having 70 elders uh, continued more or less up to Jesus' day. And so Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but he was also one of the Sanhedrin. He was, it, it was like the our version of the Senate today or something. He was one of the 70 political rulers and that 70 was headed by the high priest. Now, Nicodemus was one of them. And if that's not enough, he's a Pharisee, he's in the Sanhedrin. In verse 10, look down to verse 10. Jesus says, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? The teacher. Now there's some likelihood that Nicodemus was literally the most esteemed teacher in that generation. Like the top of the top of the top. There was no other teacher higher than Nicodemus. A Pharisee, one of the Sanhedrin, the teacher. If anyone was in the kingdom of God, certainly it was a man such as Nicodemus. Now let's read verses two and three says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then here we go. Verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We read Nicodemus came by night uh, it, it's likely this was so that he could preserve some kind of privacy. You know, who, who, who would this, this, this teacher of Israel, it would be almost, uh, you know, shaming that he would go to this 30-year-old kind of unknown rabbi and be asking him questions. And so he, he goes by night and he's trying to avoid some of the masses here. And it's, it's almost patronizing. He says, Jesus, we know you're a teacher, you know, we all know I'm the teacher, but we know you're a teacher. It's clear with your signs. You, you probably have something to say, Jesus. And so he, he acknowledges Jesus and his signs that he must be from God. And listen, Jesus doesn't acknowledge any of this flattery. He doesn't say anything and he just gets straight to the point. Truly, truly, I say to you, now, that expression, truly, truly, is unusual. It's only in the Gospel of John. John's the only author that records that Jesus said this funny thing, truly, truly. And what it is, is it's, a, it's like a dramatic way of providing emphasis. It's like Jesus saying, pay attention. What I'm about to tell you is absolutely essential. It's as if Nicodemus is coming with these nice flattering words, and Jesus looks at him and says, Listen to me, listen to me. You must be born again. You, Nicodemus, unless you 
are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is basically telling him, Nicodemus, it doesn't matter what is your political rank or your religious status or your knowledge of spiritual things or your accomplishments or your wealth or your status as a Jew, one of the people of God. There is one key, Nicodemus, to get into the kingdom of God, the new birth. And we can see from Nicodemus's reaction in verse four, when he says, look at verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then again, look at verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? What we see here is that Nicodemus has no idea what Jesus is talking about. He does not understand. He is the teacher and he, he does not comprehend what Jesus is saying. Now, it's important to write, realize this. This is a little different from our culture, but back in the day, if you were a Jew, it was a really big deal. And if, if you were a Jew, you believed as, as one of God's chosen people, they, they believed that, you know, God would, would come back and would send a Messiah and he would resurrect the living and the dead and the people of God, the Jews, would enter into the kingdom of God. That was their understanding. If, if you are one of the chosen people, when the resurrection happens, we are going to enter into God's kingdom. That was the expectation of every Jew. But now Jesus is saying, you can't enter the kingdom, Nicodemus, unless you are born again. And he's thinking, I'm already a Jew. What is a, I, I don't need a new birth. I have the only birth anyone really needs. That's to be a Jew. And what Jesus is doing here is confronting a superficial salvation that Nicodemus and all the Jews of that day were relying on, their natural birth, their status as Jews. And Jesus is saying, no, there's, there's no corporate salvation here of all the Jews. In verse three, he says, unless one is born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What he's doing is he's saying, he's getting down to individuals as if there was a crowd and he's saying, unless you and you and you, you as an individual, you must be individually born again. And if you are not, you will not see the kingdom of God. But then look with me briefly down to verse six. And, and you probably have a footnote here. Uh, it says, no, it's not verse six. Where is it? Uh, verse seven. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Now, what Jesus does in verse seven is he, that you becomes a plural you. So he starts with Nicodemus. He's like looking him in the eye. And then he kind of, in a sense, takes a step back. And now he begins speaking to all of us. He's saying, this is not just a Nicodemus problem. This is your problem. This is what you in 2020, first service reality carpenteria have to hear. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if you were born into a family of pastors and missionaries of five generations, you must be born again. It doesn't matter how much you've given away or how disciplined you are, you must be born again. 
It doesn't matter how much you know about God or how often you obey God. You must be born again. Now, we know that the kingdom of God is available to all people of all nations. It is, it is available to all. But the entrance is astonishingly narrow. It's open to everyone, but there is a very narrow entrance. And you can't get in unless you are born again. Now, what is this new birth? Jesus doesn't really explain himself. He just starts throwing this incredibly challenging paradigm bursting theology to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is like on his heels, like, what new birth? Like, am I supposed to crawl into my mother's womb? What are you saying? He doesn't even understand what the new birth is. And so this leads us to our second point of the new birth, and that is this. The new birth is not about improvement, but a new heart. That's the second thing we learn from Jesus about the new birth. The first thing we learn is you need it to get in the kingdom. But what he then goes on to explain is, listen, I'm not talking about you clean up your life. You improve your, so you make a few new uh, resolutions for 2020. It's you need a new heart. Let's read again verse, verses four and five. Nicodemus said to him, how? He's, he's like, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, a couple things here that flesh out what Jesus is saying. First, notice the metaphor Jesus is using, birth, birth. Now, uh, it's a pretty dramatic change when the, the moment before you're born to the moment after you're born. That's like a pretty dramatic thing that just happened to you right? Like for that little infant, no wonder they're upset. They just went from darkness to light. They went from breathing amniotic fluid through their umbilical cord to like to air. They're, they're fully surrounded in this warm, safe womb to all of a sudden this thing is completely like independent. It's just they're out in the world. It's a dramatic change. But, but there's even more going on here than just physical birth. As Nicodemus points out, like, what are you saying? I can't get back into my mother's womb as, a, as an adult. And what, what he's getting at is like, what are you really saying, Jesus? Why are you using this metaphor of birth? Obviously, you're not saying I need to go into my mother's womb. What are you saying? Now, throughout the Old Testament, God gave metaphors that communicated the, the dramatic transformation that happens when someone is saved or when someone enters his kingdom. Um, at, at this moment, I have to confess, I will resist my strong desire to walk you through, this is in me, every book of the Bible to show you, hey, look at this metaphor, this metaphor, this metaphor. I'll just stick with one. Uh, I'll stick with one example from the Old Testament that, that talks about the dramatic change that happens to us when we enter the kingdom of God, and if you will, um, turn with me to Ezekiel 36. I want you to see this with your eyes. We'll also have the verses on the screen. 
Ezekiel 36, and we're going to read verses 25 to 27. This is a description of what happens when God saves someone. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. Yahweh says this through his prophet Ezekiel to his people. Verse 25, Ezekiel 36, 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This here is a description of what happens to someone when they are born again, when they are saved, when they enter truly into the kingdom of God. And, and now flip with me back to John chapter three. I want you to see that is exactly what Jesus is talking about in these kind of strange words he uses in verse five, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What he's saying is you don't need to make a few improvements in your life. You need a new life altogether. He's saying you don't need a reformation of your soul, but a resurrection. The new birth is not about making spiritual progress or steps or or climbing a ladder. It's receiving a new spirit entirely. This is what Paul reminds us of in that great verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, for every person in this room who has been born again, we have incredible testimonies of how we are radically different people because of our new birth. If you're born again, you have stories likely of a time when you didn't love God. You didn't love him from your heart. You didn't want to obey and please him because you love him. And and we could, it would be so incredible. And this is just what being a part of the body of Christ should do. We should hear these stories we should know wow, that's so-and-so and what God has done in their life and that's so-and-so and what God, and, and man, I knew them before they knew Jesus and now look what Jesus has done. Look how they are new. And we all know that as we follow Jesus, our problems in life may not go away, but we face these problems as new people. Do you hear that? We face this life and its challenges as new people changed from the core. And I want to briefly address, because Jesus uses this strange expression, born of water and the spirit. What is Jesus saying? Some say 
Do you know what? He's talking about baptism. You need to be baptized or you will never be born again. And when you are baptized, then you're born again. Um, that's, that's not what Jesus is saying here. And there's a couple ways we know that. Number one, Christian baptism did not even exist yet at this point. And so Jesus wouldn't be telling Nicodemus an example or telling him about something that, that hadn't even entered into history. Secondly, we know every born again Christian should get baptized to obey Jesus, but we know that no external sign can make someone born again. That's not how the new birth happens. That's not the way it works. So this verse is not saying, listen, you need to get baptized so that you can be born again. And that's not what he's saying. And other people think this verse is referring to your natural birth, born of water, and your spiritual birth, born of the spirit, unless one is born of water and the spirit. Uh, we also think uh, scholars say, yes, probably not likely because they didn't understand birth in those terms. They didn't refer to birth as being born through water. They didn't refer to someone's water breaking the way we do. They didn't think of the amniotic fluid as water like we may be accustomed to. There just isn't evidence that they referred to birth in terms of water. So it's also not likely that's what Jesus is talking about. What the most plausible uh, interpretation comes when we say, well, what are other references of water and spirit? And that's actually found in the verse, the, the, the passage we just read in Ezekiel 36, where it says, you will be cleansed with water. And we see throughout the Bible that the spirit is often associated with water, the water of life. And so water and the spirit is this two descriptions of the same thing, the spirit regenerating a soul, bringing the new birth, cleansing our sins, washing us away and putting a new spirit in us. And so Jesus is saying the new birth is the one key into the kingdom of God and that the new birth is this radical transformation that happens as we receive a new heart. Now, Jesus goes on to say one more essential thing about the new birth. And it's an answer to this question that maybe has already happened organically as you're like, okay, so, so it's the most like, important thing ever. And it's a radical change. Like, how do I get that? Or how does someone get that? Or how does this person I'm praying for who doesn't yet believe in Jesus, how do they get that? If the new birth is so essential and so important, what can I do? What can someone do to receive the new birth? How does it come about? And that's the third thing Jesus emphasizes in our text, and it's this. The new birth is a work of God alone. The new birth is a work of God. Look again at verse six with me. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He's saying that which is born from a human being will only ever be a human being. And we know from what we studied last week and throughout the scriptures that, that human flesh is corrupt, that from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, sin has entered into humanity and we are born with this flesh that, that is full of, has this heart that's desperately sick. And in the new birth, we receive a new nature, a new heart. And that must, 
that has to come from outside of us because what we can produce on our own is only flesh. On our own as human beings, we are in a desperate situation. We cannot save ourselves or change ourselves. We cannot create a new soul, a new heart that loves God. But thanks be to God, there is another power at work in the universe than just human beings. The spirit of God is able to bring new life and a new nature and a new love for God. Now, how does the spirit do this? Look at verses seven and eight. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, Jesus uses another metaphor here. He talks about the wind. Now, uh, the word for wind is the same word in Greek for spirit. It's actually amazing. It's the same thing in Hebrew. The word for wind and spirit is the same, ruah in Hebrew, and it's pneuma in Greek. The, the spirit and wind are the same, and, and that's an, on purpose because they act very similarly. It's a great metaphor for the spirit of God. And he, he explains two things about the spirit in verse eight. And the first he says is this, the wind blows where it wishes. He's like, listen, you've all been outside. You've all seen the, the wind blowing in this direction. And all of a sudden it's blowing in that direction. And you know, we can't change it. We can't affect it. The wind does what the wind is going to do. He's saying, so it is with the spirit of God. He's saying, no, this is important. No human being can control God's spirit. For God's spirit is none other than God himself. Remember, the the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. And God is not just available to do whatever humans say, God, you need to do this now. He's God. He's going to do what he's going to do. Like the wind, God is sovereign. Humans are not sovereign. Humans don't control the weather and humans don't control the spirit of God. And so it is in the new birth. Now, this is an important thing I'm going to say. As we're, as we're not responsible, though we are participants in our physical birth, you follow with me? We're not, we didn't cause our physical birth. <laughs> it happened to us. We weren't responsible for initiating it or make it just happened to us. But we are participants, right? Like we were there. We participated in the event. So we are not responsible, though participants in our spiritual birth. Do you hear that? We didn't cause our new birth. We don't have the resources to make our souls new. That's God's work. But we are participants. We were there. We were conscious beings. And the the Bible talks about what is our part. We believe, we repent, we cling to Jesus. That's what a human does and must do to be born again. But you didn't cause the spirit of God to do something when you said a, a formula. That's not how it works. God is sovereign like the wind. He blows wherever he wishes. And when he blows, which is, this is the second thing, he says this about the wind. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. What he's saying is this. 
The Spirit of God is beyond our comprehension. We don't understand Him. We can't control Him. He's going to blow where He's going to blow, but you can see evidence of Him. The same way you can't control the wind, but like it's obvious the wind's blowing. It's there, it's doing something. It's the same with the new birth. We can't cause it, we don't control it, but it's very apparent. It's evidence, we can hear its sound, so to speak. That person just got born again. I see the evidence. If, if it's you, it's, I trust Jesus. I'm gonna trust Jesus. I accept that I am a sinner who deserves to be punished for eternity, but Jesus came and died for my sin, and I trust him. That's evidence of the work of God in your soul. That's, you can't see it, but you see the evidence of it. That is how the new birth works. We don't control the spirit. We can't summon the spirit, but we can see the spirit at work and we see the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And so in the new birth, we must humbly recognize, gosh, we know this. We can't save people. I can't save my neighbors. You can't save your family members. But God can. The Spirit of God can. The Spirit of God can blow and bring life and faith. And it will result in repentance and a new life and a new heart that says, I trust Jesus. And so the new birth is essential and it's, a prof- it's the deepest transformation that can happen and only the Spirit of God can bring it about. So like, what do we do with that if this is just God? What is this? How does this affect my life? And I want to close with three points, really practical application for us. And the first is this. Let the new birth govern your evangelism. Let it govern your evangelism. Listen, first, we need to make sure we have the right goal, right? I'm not just trying to get someone to clean up their life. I'm not just trying to get someone to intellectually agree with my theology, I, I, I need someone to be radically changed by God at the fundamental level of their heart. I, I need them to see somehow that they are desperately in need of Jesus. That's the goal. The goal is not just, hey, you know, yeah, just you try and be better. So the, the, the second thing that does in our evangelism is it leads us to pray, right? God, I can't save them, but you can save them. So God, please save my neighbors, save my family members, save my spouse, save my children. That's why we pray, because we know that the Spirit of God answers prayers. And the Spirit of God actually is able to save people. We wouldn't pray for revival if we didn't believe the Spirit of God could do it. We pray because we know God is able. And in the incredibly, incredibly complex mind of God, God loves to move through prayer. He loves, it's his favorite way of acting. He waits until someone will pray. And what we actually know is going on there is he stirs up his people to pray. Pray, ask me, watch as I answer your prayers and save people. And even sometimes throughout history, bring revival where all of these people are being born again. 
And the last piece under let the new birth govern your evangelism is, listen, you don't need to trust your cleverness and your wisdom, and uh, you need to trust the word of God and the spirit of God. Listen, you can just lay it out there in love. Hey, this is what you need. Because the word of God and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The word of God is what the spirit loves to bless. He loves to bless just the simple truths and promises in the, in the Bible. And so, listen, apologetics is helpful. It may be this process of kind of deconstructing idols and false ideas people have. But unless the spirit of God moves... There's, there's really nothing we can do. So, so preach, tell people what the Bible says. And you don't have to know all the answers. I don't know this or that or the other, but I know Jesus can save you. He's the only way. He's the only hope that you will have. And so let's, let's remember the new birth is the goal of our evangelism. Second practical thing is this. This is just important. We need to remember, the new birth reminds us there is a true source of spiritual growth, and that's the Spirit of God. We all have, listen, I know that we all walked in today with problems and concerns and questions, difficult marriages, difficult relationships. We, we came in today with many, many problems, and and. We all have people in our life we're trying to help. We're, we're trying to help others through their problems in life. But as we, we, we were reminded last week, any spiritual change that we make in our own strength is superficial. First of all, we need to be born again. And second of all, we need the Spirit of God to give us strength and wisdom for real change. Listen, new birth isn't, okay, now I'm in the kingdom and now I'm on my own. As we needed the spirit of God at the beginning, we need the spirit of God, the spirit in us to help us change. This is why Jesus says, abide in me. Every day come abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying, come to me. And you know what? This is, this is profound. True change always happens at a heart level, at the level of our worship, okay? Even, even this, like something practical. Why do, why do we eat too much? Listen, did you know it's a heart level thing going on there? Did you know it's not just, I need to try harder to not eat that and I need to try harder to eat that? There's like, there's like a heart thing going on. There's like worship on some level. There's like even maybe some idolatry in there. What we need is to go to God with this issue God, help me, and, and what am I trusting in right now that's leading me to this problem? Spirit of God, reveal to me what's going on here at this heart level, and help me, Lord. Why do I struggle with, why do we struggle with uh, being impatient? Why do we struggle with anxiety? Listen, it's, you can't just read a book or two on anxiety and be like, okay, I'm better now. Like, there's heart level stuff worship level stuff. And so we go to God and his word and his spirit and say, Lord, what's going, help me, help me here. Deep down, what am I afraid of? What am I trusting in? What's bigger to me than you are? 
change happens, true spiritual change happens on these deep levels that really only God can address. And as we commune with Jesus every day, the spirit of God, as he does to all of us, all of a sudden you just are like, wow, I think I do this. I think I've been worshiping this. I'm convicted. I actually think this. As we abide in God and as the spirit of God is in us, like that's the power and strength of true change. And so whatever resolutions, whatever changes you want to make or you want to help someone with, remember that the human being is not just the superficial, just make some changes. Like there's, there's like a spiritual realm. There's our spirits that, that need to be addressed and looked at. And, and the, third, the third practical thing is this, and this is the most important one. Hear Jesus's words to your own soul. You must be born again. Now here's the reaction. I'm a Christian. I've I was born, born again, or I know I was born again. I remember when that happened. But listen, no one had the right to assume his own salvation like Nicodemus did. No one had the right to be like, I'm good. I'm saved. And yet Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I just want to remind you, don't trust in your upbringing or your religious accomplishments or your status in and around church people. Don't trust in your good works or your correct theology or even your own going forward at an altar call or your own baptism. That's not what you trust in. You must be born again, given a new heart by the Spirit of God. Uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon once told his congregation Uh, four marks of the new birth. And I want to put these out there so that we can evaluate ourselves and others. And um, it just be, for some of us, this is a thing. We are born again, but we're like freaked out that we're not born again. There's this thing the Bible talks about. uh, It's called assurance. And it's as we see evidences of God in our life, our assurance grows. As we see, do you know what? Wow, I actually see this. And wow, I see this and I see this. That's real assurance. First John says, I wrote this so that you may know that you have life. That is God's goal, that you sitting here would know, would have confidence, I'm born again. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. That's the goal. And so here are four marks of the new birth. I just want to close these Uh, close us with these very quickly. Number one is faith in Jesus and the gospel. Again, that's, I trust Jesus and his work on my behalf, not my works, my performance. I trust Jesus. The second is repentance from your sin. Like, not just, I don't like getting in trouble. I don't like the consequences. Like, I hate that I sin against God. Number three is prayer. I love communing with God. I love being with God. And the fourth, probably most practical for many of us, is he calls it the possession of a new life. You have new desires. You have a love for God's word. You love the people of God. You you have a concern for the lost. You have joy in worship. You fight. You fight your flesh, and your sin. Those are, that's the marks of someone who has a new life. Now, I want to clear something up really quickly. You know, we talk about new birth and 
uh, I'm a new creation. You know, there's a false teaching out there that says once you're born again, you don't struggle at all anymore. Your entire sin nature is completely gone. That's what Galatians says, you're gone. And uh, now you're, you're born again. You're just new. You don't struggle. Uh, that's a false teaching. The Bible says you are, you are given a new heart and a new nature, but you are also waiting for the return of Jesus. And as you do that, you have what is called the flesh. And so a Christian in Galatians 5.17, it says, is at war. The spirit is at war with the flesh within us. And so do you know a mark of a Christian is someone who has this battle going on in their heart all day long, every day. I love God. I also love, uh, I'm really tempted to eat this thing. I love God. I don't want to sin. Gosh, I'm really struggling with lust right now. I love God. Gosh, I really want to just lash out in my anger. But that battle is evidence that there are two natures there. There are two selves. There's the old man and the new man. And that the spirit of God is saying, nope, nope, you're, you're, you're mine. You can fight. You're not a slave to sin. And when you do fall into temptation, do you know what a Christian does? They repent. God, have mercy on me. Like David in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, Lord. I hate my sin. I don't want to sin against you. That is evidence of a new life, that, that the spirit is in you and you do love God even though you struggle, even though you, you have to fight the flesh until you see Jesus face to face. But we know for those who have been born again, the day is coming when we will see Jesus and we will fight and struggle no more. There will only be the new heart and we will be given a new body to just enjoy Jesus and not struggle with temptation and not fight our flesh anymore. And the spirit of God right now is like a down payment in your soul saying, you know what? I got you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to get you through this. Keep trusting me. Keep fighting your sin. Keep walking with me until you see my face. So Jesus, we just thank you for the gift and reality of the new birth. Lord, I pray right now that for those who have yet to be born again, that your spirit would blow like wind through this room, that, that they would hear and believe that, Jesus, you are the only way. That though they have sinned against you, that you died on the cross for them, that they would trust in you, they would not perish, but have eternal life. Would you open the blind eyes, Lord, and make hearts new? And Lord, for others of us who have been born again, Lord, we say thank you. And Lord, would you continue to grow us in holiness and in assurance that we would know that we know that we know that we are sons and daughters of God. Holy Spirit, I ask, because you love us, if there are ways that we have wandered like sheep, if there are sins that we are uh, making provision for, if there are things that are hidden in darkness that need to come to light, would your spirit blow so strongly in us this morning that we couldn't like keep that stuff in the dark. That we would repent of our sin. We'd confess our need for you. We'd confess our sin to you and even to a brother or sister this morning and we would take communion and be reminded that you forgive us, that you went to the cross for the very sins we're hiding right now. 
we could be free from those things, of all the guilt and shame, and that you are able, Holy Spirit, to, to lead us in holiness. So would you do that for some of us this morning? God, if there are those who are born again and are walking with you, but just don't have that sense, that assurance, like I'm a son and daughter of God, I ask that your spirit would just graciously give, give some assurance this morning where it's needed, that we would look back and see fruit evidence of the, the wind of God in our life. Like, I really do love God. I really do want to follow him. I really don't love my sin. I really do want to walk with him. And would you comfort those of us who need that comfort and assurance this morning? Jesus, I thank you that we can be born again and that there is a way into your kingdom that you love us and you've provided a way through your own body and blood. 